call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 47 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched 1987's The Last Emperor. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. A couple of bits of business to take care of. Firstly, apologies for the sound quality in this episode. We were working under difficult circumstances, okay? Secondly, we're going to be on hiatus for a few weeks, but when we come back, it'll be with pristine audio video, probably guests potentially and more importantly myself and donica will both be in the same room breathing the same covid infected air we'll be putting out other content each week until then on the podcast feed follow call it friend of podcast on instagram to keep up to date with what's going on but mainly thanks for listening enjoy this episode about bernard o bertolucci's the last emperor What the fuck have you been watching this week? Do you want me to go through everything I've been watching? Shall we do them one about? We'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll tennis ball it, will we? Is that what we're calling it? That's Yeah, I've called it that several times. I thought it was a thing by this point. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine. I understand it. First up, I watched the HBO documentary Woodstock 99 Peace, Love and Rage about the ill-fated Woodstock 99 Music Festival. Have you heard anything about this? Well, I've heard a fair bit over the years about Woodstock 99, but I didn't even know this documentary was coming out. And I would, I, I would like to hear it because it's, a, it's an infamous affair, Woodstock 99. No, there was, like, there was rapes and riots and shit. Yeah, I vaguely remember it being a bit of a shit show back in the day. They booked a ton of new metal bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit. And then they were surprised that the crowd got a bit out of hand. And the documentary is a mix of home video footage and MTV reporting with talking heads ranging from the organizers to journalists and some of the acts. Yeah, I vaguely remember because I must have been 18, 17, 18 at the time. And I do have a memory of fires, of lots of fires burning. And they go into that a lot in the documentary. Was it a camping festival, like a Glastonbury type affair? Yeah, yeah, exactly, except it was on uh, a U.S. Air Force base to really keep that spirit of 69 alive. Like a, a functioning U.S. Air Base? No, I think, they'd, I think the U.S. military had stopped using it at this point. Yeah, and if, I'm, if I can remember, so, some of the, the, so yeah, you had Limp Bizkit, Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, I believe, and Korn, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, who else was there? There were 100 acts, and three of them were female. So you had Cheryl Crow, Shit, boo. Uh, Alanis Morissette, boo. and Jewel. Boo. <laughs> but yeah, it was Car Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, Dave Matthews Band, <laughs> bizarrely. James Brown was there. Uh, but yeah, the vast majority was pretty heavy. Kid Rock. It, it's worth the watch for the for the footage. The footage of the time is quite good, but... Some of the talking heads, Moby, seems like a complete shite bag. Imagine yeah. being chided by Moby, of all people. I would, I would consider that I'm on the right side here. Yes, I'm the goody. He's hardly covered himself in glory over the years, but he comes across really badly. I have actually... Yeah, tell me your first thing. I have two things almost together I would lump in, both of well, which I would uh, la label as don't read anything about these before you watch them. Well, particularly the first one I'll so mention. So we'll, we'll go deep into the plot for both of them. <laughs> well, you've probably seen one of them, uh, so I'll go the the one you haven't. First of all, yeah. I really recommend, and I think you'd really enjoy, a 2016 uh, horror film called Better Watch Out, which was uh, written and directed by Chris Peckover. Zach Can almost uh, like co-wrote it with them. You have not heard of any of these people before, and they haven't made anything since, so why would you have? I don't know, did you see M. Night Shyamalan? Allen's um, found footage film, The Visit. No, I never got around to that one. Well, the two leads from that are bizarrely enough present in this one. So it's the story of basically mm. around Christmas time, a, ba a young girl is going to, well, she's like, I don't know, 18, I think. Oh, so it is actually about Santa Claus. <laughs> well, it's set around Christmas time. She has to babysit this kid who's like 12 and he fancies her. And then, I don't know, sinister goings on be happening, etc. 
uh, I can't emphasize enough, like, just the less you know going into this one, the better. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. So you've already it. ruined it. It's like a John Hughes Christmas movie. There's actually a lot of John Hughes Christmas movie, John Hughes horror movie. There's actually a lot of references to John Hughes movies throughout. So I'm sure, the, I'm sure, like you know, it's not news to them how much it would remind you of one of those. But I would really recommend it. I think you'd really like it. Plus, at 89 minutes, I believe it's already five stars. Well, I'm gonna watch it twice. I discovered. I, so I looked up a little bit about it when you told me about it, and uh, the Guardian gave it four stars, but it wasn't Peter Bradshaw, so I don't know what to believe. Well, fuck that then. Um, mm-hmm. But I discovered a little interesting something about it, something that could actually answer queries we had about the profitability of S. Craig Zahler early in the I don't know series or whatever. This film would have had a budget of three million. A box office release of uh, close to 200 grand but it actually made money by just going around on the horror festival circuit and they just make the money from selling out screenings or something pretty much yeah can you think of any other films where you would just be better off not look up anything before you watch them well my winnipeg obviously obviously I think the best answer is probably all films, realistically, but that's not how modern culture works for no. anyone who with a remote interest in film. I'd go for, I guess, anything with like an intricate layered structure, like Primer or The Prestige, something with like a big plot twist or uh, reveal somewhere in it. Yeah. Some, Those are the ones I'd really stay away from. Something with a plot twist that matters. Actually, but I, I thought a similar thing, because I'm going to breeze right into the second one and then uh, tennis ball it back to you i also okay. rewatched um ari aster's day de- well i don't know was it his debut actually ari aster's film Heredi- yeah i think it is his first film hereditary again which my god that is horrifying like that's a truly horrifying horror movie but it's still fun have you've seen it before have you so i watched hereditary but i definitely need to rewatch it because i watched it during my drinking days and I think I'd had a few too many beers. I remember some scenes very clearly, like the car scene. But, uh, yeah, I need to rewatch that one. Well, like, it's still plenty fun. But, ba- like, the basic plot, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it, is a lady played by Tony Collette. Her mother dies. And then, I don't know, some sort of sinister presence seems to have been passed on by her mother to her two children. There are shocks Would galore. Would you say it was hereditary? Indeed. There are shocks galore in it, and there's also the, he uses this odd, weird device. She's a a miniaturist who makes little miniature models, uh, artworks, and it kind of the the plot is guided through her. Like there's one particularly disturbing moment in it, which she soon after recreates in miniature form. It's really really something, and it also reminded me of um, Ben Wheatley's film Kill List because. Uh, oh, I've seen that. What is it about Satanists and getting naked? <laughs> it's a big part. I think the whole idea of worshipping Satan means that you're in love. You, you like fun. You like, how, you like sexy times. Yeah, get the lads out. But it's really, really good. I mean, because I, I remember um, even watching it in the cinema. There are parts early in the film where the Satanism that's present is hinted at. Like, they're at the grandmother's funeral. And uh, this guy from the corner of the room just is staring at the daughter and she looks over at him. He's got this big goofy smile on his face and he gives her a wave and it's never referred to again. You might take note of watching it a second time. But yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. But then I was thinking when I was watching it um, how little fun I had with Midsummer, And I was thinking, man, horror movies do need to be a little bit of crack, don't they? I don't know. Is that not like a specific sub-genre of horror? Fun horror? Well, like what's a horror film that you love? We've talked about Drag Me to Hell. That's the first thing that comes to mind at the moment. Well, no, fair enough. But try and I, think I'm, of it. I probably would go with the fun ones. The Exorcist isn't particularly fun. But there's fun parts in it. Yeah, there's that bit where the the priest dies. That's fun. There's a part where the girl gets a CAT scan. That's very fun. Oh, that's not fun. What are the fun parts of The Exorcist? When she says your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karas. <laughs> <laughs> that's very fun it's not a fun time for old uh damien Karras. he doesn't look too happy <laughs> no, with no, that. that's fair i suppose he's not that... like ah oh, good one i just remember I like joshing i just remember getting big shock laughs out of the exorcist almost every time i watch it except for the big scary horrible uh, masturbating bit which 
you know, never fails to shock me, quite frankly. I'll tell you what's really depressing. Ari Aster just turned 35 last month. He's already up to his third film. He's got a film coming out next year called Disappointment Boulevard, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Starring Joaquin Phoenix, yeah, that's right. Well, what the fuck else did you watch this week? Next up, I finally got round to rewatching Chronicle. This time I saw the director's cut, which is about five minutes longer than the theatrical. They added a tiny bit of character interaction stuff. With that extra footage, the runtime is 90 minutes, including credits. Classic. And the credits are around seven. So the actual time when stuff is happening is around 83 minutes. That's and a that's Christmas the extended special. director's cut. That's, what that's, I like why I think, that's why I think Chronicle might be the best film ever made. That's why I think Josh Trank needs another go at it. He should have done a 72-minute Fantastic Four. That would have been perfect. I'd go for 7.2. Anyway, is is Chronicle as fucking fantastic as I remember it? Yeah, I, it, what what impressed me most about watching this again is just how propulsive it is. It's such an easy watch. There's yes. not an ounce of fat on it, not surprisingly, given 83 minutes of stuff happening. They sell the found footage angle quite well, and that lends to a naturalistic element. Like we said before, it's basically the American live-action Akira building from testing superpowers to a huge fight in downtown Seattle, throwing buses at each other. Some of the wire work is a bit ropey in the end scenes, but it doesn't really matter. I think they, I think they sell it quite well. It's a low-budget film. It made a shit ton of money. It was number one in the box office. It made around 120 million off of like about a, I can't remember, about 12 or 15 budget. Yeah, it's why, it, like, it really opened money the doors maker. to Hollywood for him, which were then promptly shut on him again. I, I remember listening. Yeah, to an he lost the with, Star Wars um, gig he had. Yeah, I remember listening to an interview with them. Um, Mark Millar talking about that whole in incident and him saying how it was rumors are abound that Josh Trank is blah 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 difficult to work for and Mark Millar is insistent and I've heard plenty of other people with this opinion that it's like it, just because some publicity firm said that he's difficult to work with doesn't mean anything it just means that he probably had an original vision and they kicked him out for it and he said and all the evidence you need for him having an original vision is present in Chronicle and I was like, that's actually a very fair point. Yeah, Chronicle was his idea, and then he brought on Max Landis to help flesh out the script. Yurt, just actually, just this morning, I watched Bad Boys for Life. I had to be up with a baby. I wanted something that didn't require too much concentration, and I'd heard it was decent. And uh, it is actually decent. It's really, it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed the first Bad Boys film, do you? I enjoyed the first one. The second one left a distinctly sour taste in my mouth. Yeah, the especially second one is the freeway chase scene where they they run over corpses. The second one is just a horrible film. That I mean, but the first one is one of the three point five good movies that Michael Bay has done, which is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, it was a fun film, Bad Boys. This new one kind of tries to do a Jump Street, um, not fully. Now it's not totally glib. But it kind of makes fun of how ridiculous the whole idea is. It's more so like the Fast and the Furious, in that somebody in the Bad Boys franchise is functioning like Vin Diesel, and he still doesn't quite get the joke, and probably holds the keys to the kingdom and is unwilling to make fun of it completely. But these two, this directing duo, they're from Belgium, I believe, Adil and Bilal, they're called. Yeah. They kind of just seem to make fun of these two old fellas still trying to be cops and it's good and um i mean martin lawrence veers between annoying and funny will smith you know is will smith whatever but i mean they, they make some gags at the franchise's expense and some of the action set pieces are really really fun so yeah i had a really good time with this actually you have anything else on your roster well, uh, I've rewatched a film that I've seen many, many times. I, I rewatched Frequency. <laughs> I've referenced it multiple times <laughs> in previous episodes. But after I, I, so what happened was I watched the Frequency TV series, which was uh, made in 2017. They did like 13 episodes and then it got cancelled. This film has one of my favorite sci-fi premises. I would recommend not knowing anything about it before watching it, if anyone does want to watch it. It's a great film. It's ruined only by a, a, a ridiculous music cue in the last two minutes where they, they end on a Garth Brooks song. How did uh, the film we had to watch for the podcast this week rank in terms of everything else you watched? I really enjoyed The Last Emperor. I thought it was great. 
my feeling when I was watching it, because I watched the theatrical cut, you watched the extended version. While I was watching it, I thought like, wow, Donica's really fucked himself because the theatrical cut feels really tight. It runs about two hours, 40 minutes, more or less. But it feels extremely deliberate. It moves along at a, quite a good pace for that length. And I just felt like, I think you've made the experience worse for yourself by watching the longer version. Well, you know who would agree with you wholeheartedly? Bernard O. Bert O. Lucci. In a blog post on the Criterion Collection, they contacted him directly. And he, yeah, he edited together the version I watched for, for TV, essentially. I can definitely see there what you're saying. But the thing is, the version I watched, because I, there's only a, a couple of things. I could guess at other things, but there's only a couple of things I know for sure were additional. And one of them gives you a more um, clear look into the film's politics, I suppose. But I suppose before we go down that route, what other Bertolucci have you seen? Uh, I watched Last Tango in Paris when I was about 16. Uh, I think I was too young to really get it. I was still a virgin until last week. So, you know, I I didn't really understand (laughs) the sexy parts. And certain scenes and imagery are burned into my brain, though, notably the sexual assault. I, I watched last time I go in Paris. The other film of his I've seen is Stealing Beauty, where Liv Tyler, well, basically the pitch is uh, American teenage virgin goes to Italy and every single man there tries to shag her. Well, nice, I suppose. I mean, what, how, how young is Liv Tyler at the risk of sounding like a pervert? Uh, I feel like the character is 18 or 19. And I'm, let's just say she is too. She's probably about 34 or something going by Hollywood logic. So he would have been one of, well, as like mentioned on this podcast, I've been watching a whole bunch of him recently. Now, he would have been one of the... Not his um, films, just him. Just him, uh, his grave, because he's a friend of the show, as of about not uh, five anywhere. years ago, I think. But um, yes. anyway, he would have been one of these European intellectual communists we've already spoken about before how he bailed the star or the director i'm not sure the director of tukibuki out of prison when he went to go when he went to do a mayday protest in italy but um yeah him mm-hmm. along with um jean-luc godard or um jean-paul sartre would have been the intellectual communists now the thing is with his more famous like early works the communist subtext is so heavily laden in but there's also kind of a sort of an existentialism to it in that he's not quite i don't know sure about it he's questioning himself which is the perfect excuse if you want to pretend to be a communist while simultaneously you know live in italy and make a bunch of money whatever man but um it did get me thinking though because he's got a writing credit on like Maybe the best Western ever. Certainly one of the best. He co-wrote... Oh, yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West, right? That's right. That's right. And it got me thinking to... Um, recently, The I heard the Adam Buxton podcast when it had Stuart Lee on, and he was talking about how all spaghetti Westerns were um, socialist allegories. And I watched a bunch of spaghetti Westerns following that. And, I, you know, I was watching going out. I suppose, actually, Stuart Lee kind of does have a point there. And particularly with Once Upon a Time in the West, where it's all about you know, land barons versus men of the people, etc. This, for me, it spells a difference because it's literally about, it's a very original angle from which to look at the birth of a communist state. However, it's not that directly of a, for one of, of a better uh, phrasing, it's not that much of a communist film, wouldn't you say? Well, I think it's it's just a Puyi uh, biopic, essentially. Yes. The, you have to remember, like, the CCP allowed the filmmakers to enter China, to go to the Forbidden City. They had unprecedented access. This was two years before Tiananmen Square. In this time period, they were allowing outsiders to come in and, and show these aspects of Chinese history. The the filmmakers said that the CCP gave only minimal interference in the script. They asked for some names to be changed, basically. But I'd say more than anything, it's just about the life of of Puyi. It it shows a little of I don't know. You have you have to accept it that there's going there is going to be some influence. That it's not going to show the communists in any bad light whatsoever. Yeah, no, no, no. There, there isn't. It has no criticism towards communists at all. But yeah, I suppose it is just almost zero. It is like it's a departure completely from the earlier films that I've seen of his. 
it, like his early films are so fucking laden with subtext that they almost topple over, despite being quite compelling, contrasted with other stuff that I was watching at the time, like La Strada, which has got heaps of subtext, but it just kind of washes over you. Whereas the subtext in his earlier films would can be a little bit more distracting, which isn't to take from them as f- of films. I'll give you like another example, something like Fanny and Alexander, which is loaded with, I mean, there's you, you like, even when you're watching it, I couldn't tell you all the layers, but you know, they're there, you know, but it's quite a, an engaging film and it sucks you in. Whereas early Bertolucci can be like, I don't know, almost intellectually intimidating. It shouldn't be. You probably enjoy the films more if you weren't thinking about them so much. And I find that... I mean, I've, I've only watched his two films about shagging. <laughs> well, I haven't seen any of the political stuff. But I'd imagine, like, fucking Last Tango in Paris is no uh, walk in the park intellectually either, you know? I'd imagine you just want to just let it happen to you. But the thing is, with The Last Emperor, is it's so linear, and it's got none of its, like, none of his usual sort of tricks let's say like him using montage and specific cuts together to to tell a story and implant ideas in your head basically as you're watching it that i mean it's just it's very much straight up and to be honest for the story that he wanted to tell you know i'm sure he considered himself lucky as well but the locations play such a a really great part in it because you're so you're you're watching this guy who was completely cut off from the rest of the world and history is happening outside these walls which are magnificent the scenes inside the the, like the Mm -hmm. the, almost the first half of the film inside the forbidden city and it's amazing (laughs) it can't have been the first half of your film was it pardon if that was the first half of your film then that explains where all the extra scenes were well there were like there was certainly a bit at the start i'd say i could even pick them out then all of a sudden, the, even though I mean, it's sure I'm sure it's an exaggeration, but it's quite poetic. The scene where all, there's a bit of machine gun fire, and all of a sudden, Japanese soldiers invade the Forbidden City. I thought that was amazing because it's just like all the world is just happening outside, and he's missed. Mm-hmm. He's missed basically the major breakthroughs that the Japanese have made in the Second Sino-Japanese War. And all of a sudden, they're there, they're in the Forbidden City, and they just take him away. I thought that was amazing, just how quickly that happened. I think the story, well, what struck me when watching it was, the story was so interesting. Hmm. It would almost have been difficult to fuck up, to an extent. Yes, Just I hitting all the beats of, like, just the, the story is insane, of a young child at two years old who was thrust into becoming the emperor... Of a, of a failing empire just after the Boxer Rebellion, which we saw a bit of in Gareth Evans's Apostle, if you remember. I do. Was a, those were probably the best scenes of that film. He's born into this failing empire. Over the course of his young adult life, he's given, ev- he's given everything he wants throughout his childhood and then towards becoming a, becoming a man. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. He tortures all of his eunuchs. He is just a little shite bag the entire time. Yeah. He gets married. He's got two wives. He's he's up to all kinds of shenanigans. The the real uh, Puyi apparently um, had sex with men as well. It was all eunuchs. Everything. It was it was all it was all game. It was all going on. Then later on, he's cast out of the Forbidden City. The Japanese install him as a puppet in Manchuria. So throughout the Second World War, he's just got this, he's living in a huge mansion, he has the power that he wants. Then after that, he gets, he's tried for his crimes, he's sent to prison, he's rehabilitated until he finally dies as a peasant, dies as a commoner. And in the 1960s, people used to go, foreign correspondents in China used to, used to kind of look out for him in the streets, eventually get interviews. And he would speak to people. So just, I mean, imagine that as like a foreign correspondent talking to this peasant who was like, yeah, I used to be the emperor around here. And I think they captured that quite well in the final scene of the film. I agree. Well, I, overall, I like, I like, that's the thing is like any criticisms I might've suggested about Bernardo Bertolucci's other film, I consider me the problem, not him. I think he's just an excellent filmmaker. Um, And I, I like, yeah, I think, with just the epic nature of this story it's like you said the story is so interesting but it's also helped along just by the fact that he's so good as a filmmaker 
um, it's paced really nicely and all the extra fat on it we, I would say most of the extra fat is I have an awful lot of scenes particularly in the latter half of the film uh, set in the uh, prison camp they take yeah. his manservant away from him and all this kind of crack yeah we saw that I saw here the manservant going but yeah there wasn't so much of the prison camp it's there were elements of it filtered throughout the film and then towards the end, once he was finally in the camp, you saw as a few scenes, not a huge amount, mm. where he confesses his crimes, etc. Uh, one thing that uh, the locations reminded me of is, um, you know, in Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's shot around all these castles in Ireland, real, ca- real castles. But of course, it was shot in the 70s. Right. So the, the castles are in a sort of a state of disrepair. And there's times where you're looking at the Forbidden City where you're kind of like, this is the Forbidden City of the 1980s for sure. Like there's weeds growing around the place. It's just a, <laughs> a little bit of an interesting um, anachronism, I thought. And it was in 1987 that the Forbidden City was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So that probably would have been the point where they started taking care of it just around when the film came out. Did you hear the David Byrne in the soundtrack as you were watching this film? I did. Okay, it's an interesting soundtrack because you yeah. uh, David Byrne did the main theme, which I thought was as soon as I heard the main theme, I was like, "This yeah. is getting added to some kind of playlist on Spotify." I, I love it. It's uh, the yeah. rest of uh, uh, the, there were three composers. Some of it was done by Ryuichi Sakamoto. It's this. This is the second film uh, of, on the Call It Ferendo that he's done the score for. You remember the other? Uh, I'm gonna say Battle Royale. Like it was a the racist? Revenant. Okay, fair enough. He also appears in the film. Yeah, so Ryuichi Sakamoto, he also played the character of Amakasu, the, the one-armed Japanese man who killed Richard Kimball's wife. Genuinely, when he spoke in the film, I felt like, who is this guy? He must be a friend of the director. I didn't realize he was one of the film's composers <laughs> because he did was clearly not an actor. Yeah. When can, he's he's like screaming at them. He he's supposed to be like this Japanese enforcer, and he's like, "I'm very angry right now." God, there's some weird things going on with the Japanese in the film. Um, it, what do you mean? Well, like you might have more Japanese content than I did. Oh yeah, fair enough. Okay, well, did you have the evil lesbian pilot lady? Yeah, yeah, she's based on a real person who was raised in Japan. What was a her name? Eastern Jewel. And is is the lesbian stuff in there yeah, Eastern with her Joel. and John Chen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's sucking on her toes at yeah. one point. Yeah, she's based on a real person called Yoshiko uh, Kawashima, who was kind of like the Eastern Matahari. She was a spy that was raised in Japan, and she fought with the Japanese. Uh, she did a lot of shagging and killing. And uh, eventually she was charged with treason and executed. She was shot in the back of the head, 25th of March, 1948. And her body was put on display, public display. And you can find photographs of that public display if you want to see friend of the show, Yoshiko Kawashima. I mean, I kind of do now. Yeah, if you want to see what happens. You want to see what happens if you collaborate with the Japanese. Yeah, I thought I thought she was an odd character. And she's also the second kind of... A political lesbian that I've seen in a, a Bertolucci film. The the conformist also has. To be fair, it was accurate lesbian. to the time period. What do you mean? I mean, it was. She was an actual person. She was an actual person. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's. Fair. It's not that's like fair. he made that up. It's strange because for the time period, I'm sure even I mean even with that taken on board, how he doesn't quite lean into it. The Japanese, without telling anybody edited out the newsreel footage about the rape of Nanking, which is some <laughs> sneaky business to be doing in 1987. You think that's bad? There's stuff like that that I, mean, I think even nowadays you'll find school books over there that don't have anything of that history in them. That's not something that's gone away. That's still part of Japanese culture. <laughs> Just denying what went on in World War II. There's a lot of stuff that they won't admit to including like the use of comfort women in china and uh, southeast asia and also korea all of the rape of nanking stuff all the things that happened in unit 731 as well don't look up unit 731 unless you really are interested because it's fairly horrific stuff i would genuinely warn people off that it's uh 
it's not nice to know about that kind of thing, to be honest. When I was at university, uh, one guy I knew had a band called Unit 731. So that's how I found out about it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it's basically like the Japanese version of Joseph Mengele. Where do you think the um, film stands on uh, Puyi for a finished? I think the fact that they left out a lot of the more unsavory parts of his of his life, he was considered to be cruel. He was cruel. I mean, as a child, you can't maybe can't blame him for that part. But even later on, when he was running the puppet state, even at that point, he was he was torturing people. He was doing all kinds of unsavory shit. He was a bad guy. He was reformed later on. As much as, I, I mean, he went along with the communist and kind of renounced his past. What I thought was quite funny or that I read about him, like even late in life, he died when he was around, I think he was 61. Late in life, he would still like, he still had no concept of how to look after himself. He would do all kinds of shit, like just like leave taps running and doors open and like all <laughs> kind of, like just all this kind of stuff. He just had no clue of how to look after himself. Because as That's we see in the funny. film, like he get he got his arse wiped for him when he was going to have sex with his wife for the first time. Or they were going to have sex. There was like there were all these eunuchs around to like take their clothes off for them. That's the scene where um, the fact that there's an Italian man directing it is most evident because there's just this... Also, the fact, I suppose, he's trying to gain the perspective of a teenage boy, but there's just this focus on on the on, um, <laughs> Joanne Chen's boobs for like 20 seconds. <laughs> Probably the creepiest part, which again, this is actually true, that uh, Puyi had a wet nurse until he was eight years old and she was sent away at that point because... The, there's like a group of four ladies. I think they're dowager empresses. They were kind of judging of this wet nurse that he had. And they were like, he, he's eight years old. He shouldn't have a wet nurse anymore. I don't think they should be faulted for that, for sending away this lady's breasts. No. So that, Because we, do, we see that one scene of him when he's supposed to be eight years old breastfeeding. And he's like basically the same height as her. And he's like wrapping his arms around her, <laughs> going swooping in to suckle on a teat and you think this is probably not right where do you think the film stands politically i say like in terms of i don't know china japan the cultural revolution that kind of shit the only criticism of the ccp is probably what happens to the is he the governor of the prison or the guy who's kind of been talking to him during yeah, the, his stay in prison who ends up scene. getting yeah, yeah. communists turn against this guy and and you know puyi saying like he's a good man I guess that's the only criticism of showing, and I guess they're all, they're also showing all just that kind of almost religious fervor that these communists had that they just they would trample over anyone. Apart yeah. from that, I, the, the the attitude towards the Japanese, I think it's fair. Yeah, I think it's a fair reflection of what happened at the time. I I feel like I I feel like the presentation of the facts. There's going to be a slight CCP tinge because of yeah. being allowed into China to shoot it, but I don't think it goes overboard. I think it's just a fairly accurate representation of what went on. Yeah, plus I think due to the fact that they decided to um, foc focalize the story on Puyi, a man who is by definition like oblivious to most things, and it did turn out that he was used as a diplomatic tool by the Japanese, hence we get more of a look at the kind of cruelty that the Japanese were up to. And, like, and while, it, of course, it would be more interesting to see a film produced in China that kind of gave us a gritty look at the Great Leap Forward, um, which was um, Mao's big attempt to industrialize China that killed like 50 million people with a famine, or the Cultural Revolution, where basically they just tried to completely de delete all Chinese history before... Uh, the Cultural Revolution, so he could um, collectivize power again. Like, these are interesting things, but will you ever get... Will you ever be allowed to make a film, an honest film about those set in China? I don't think so. But I do... But no. the, the fact that, that this... You, you, needed a, you needed a foreigner to make it. It had to come from outsiders. And the fact that this film is focalized around Pu uh, Yi, it means that, I suppose, he doesn't make too many sacrifices to veracity because... Puyi was, by definition, fucking oblivious to everything. Like, that's why that scene is so interesting when the Japanese right. arrives. He's there fucking playing tennis with Peter O'Toole, 
and the Japanese <laughs> just march in. Like, it's amazing. I, I, I thought that was, even though it probably didn't happen like that, I just thought that was so emblematic of the way it probably was for him. We should also note this film was nominated for nine Oscars and won all nine of them. Yeah, yeah, it did great. It's, I feel like it's become, I, it's weird though, because like I feel like it's kind of been forgotten a little bit. It's definitely not up there as a film that people, is this a film that would immediately come to mind as a best picture winner? No, but that said, I was best maybe, picture, maybe it's best just director, something, best screenplay. Maybe it's just something that we've gotten used to. But when I started watching it, and I was like, "Oh, it's in English." I mean, I but I suppose back in the nineteen eighties, yeah. they weren't doing that just yet, just making movies in the language, whatever you know. Which I think is, if you look at this film, it won nine Oscars, no nominations for acting. Yeah, and I think that's fair. It's a great yeah. film. But they make sacrifices to make it as authentic looking as possible. Yeah, and, pl- yeah, and that's it enough. It would have been a better film in Chinese, but there is a lot about the conflict between him and his eunuchs in my version. Was that there in yours? No, not not really. Oh, you, which conflict? Do you mean when they were burning? When they burned down the storehouses later on to hide what they were stealing, or when he was younger? No, there's a big build-up to uh, the fire in the storehouses, let's say. Like, a lot of... Hate. No, that was very brief. Okay. That was like 20 minutes in mine, and I was thinking, well, I was like, this could... this. There's no way this is... Yeah, okay. Also, the guy that was in, that was interrogating him in the prison camp, we got to uh, hear a little bit about his life and why he's so angry at Pew Yi. Mm, I don't recall that. What What was his reasoning for that? Uh, all because of his family was from um, Mancudo and uh, he they were all buried alive and stuff like that and that's why he's so angry. No, I've definitely never got any of that, yeah. Okay, uh, do, Okay. Do, what about um, Joanne Chen getting pregnant and then the Japanese killing her baby? Yeah, that's still in there. The Tai Chi sequence in the prison camp? Yeah, but it's very short. Ah, right, no. I mean, there's uh, there's a whole exchange that goes into that in mine. There's an exchange in this as well, but uh, but it's, it, no, it's a very short one in the in the theatrical. Ah, so in that case, it's it's become it, like it's difficult for me to pinpoint it. I, I, I maybe they just lengthen. But that's the why I thought like that, and that that's what worried me was that there wouldn't be a huge amount of new stuff, but just longer cuts and holding things for longer. That's why I thought like, wow, this. It might be a completely different experience and not a good one. And an important point: one of the Oscars that this film won was for editing. Well, like I'll tell so you, so it was praised for how well cut it was I'll theatrically. Tell you, I'll tell you this: I was just like the first hour; it kind of t- took a bit, uh, a bit out of me. To be honest, I was kind of like, "Oh God, what more with this kid and these fucking eunuchs and whatever." But then, oh man, you watched the wrong one. But, but yeah, then I kind of got swept up in it and quite enjoyed it. And uh, it could have gone on. as like It, it kind of got me. I felt like I was just watching a bunch of episodes of a TV show. Also, the 1920s looks like it would have been a fun time to be rich during. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I quite like the internet, despite all the negatives of social media, etc. Yard. All right. You want to spill some beans for me on casting? Yeah, so first of all, for Puyi, there were four actors because he was portrayed as a three-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 15-year-old, and then as, a, as an adult. I was really shocked seeing that three-year-old. I think the actor was actually six, but even then, I was just like, how do you even corral this kid to run around the forbidden city? Yeah. I mean, that's just madness. He also re- helped revive an old, um, call it friend or tradition, of little boy penis. Uh, got a little, little we did we did we, we that that young boy's called Richard Vu we did get to see his little boy penis and then uh a eunuch smelt his shite yum the adult puyi was played by John Lone John Lone was raised in an orphanage and later adopted by a Shanghainese woman he began training in Beijing opera at Hong Kong's Choo Choo Academy Choo Choo Academy that's not funny yeah surely <laughs> is that not <laughs> I don't know he trained as a train engineer at Choo Choo Academy. <laughs> it was here at the age of ten where he was given the name Johnny. He later chose the name Lone to reflect the fact that he was an orphan. How cool is that? He's called John Lone because he was an orphan. He's like John Wick. John yeah, Wick because he's cool. a candle maker's son. 
Good old Johnny Loans. It's pretty badass. John Lone later emigrated to Los Angeles. He went on to play Shiwan Khan in The Shadow, starring Alec Baldwin. Did you have you watched The Shadow from nineteen ninety three? Oh, it's a good film. That's like a, a kind of early superhero film. Quite dark. It was a good film. And then also uh, John Lone went on to play Ricky Tan in Rush Hour Two. Nice. I saw Rush Hour Two in Times Square in New York City. That's one of the most fun screenings I've ever been to. Just people having full-blown conversations with the screen. Sounds like a good one to see in, a, in uh, under the American rules, all right, yeah. Moving on to Joan Chen. Joan Chen played Wan Rong, which is a good score in a Glaswegian pub quiz. <laughs> There's, he, that, was, that was the first uh, wife that he married. Her name was Wan Rong, but it sounds like he married the wrong Wan... Oh, no. Joan Chen was born in Shanghai to a family of pharmacologists. She and her older brother, Chase, Chase Chen, that's a good name, were raised during the Cultural Revolution. At the age of 14, Chen was discovered on the school rifle range by Jiang Qing, the wife of leader Mao Zedong. Yeah, A major Chinese Communist Party figure for excelling at marksmanship. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, For more info on her, exactly. more of her story, you should really... um uh, dig into the Adam Curtis documentary from last year, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Or this year, rather. Yeah, this year. Whose story? Jan King or John Chen? Jan King. Jan King. Ah, okay. Fascinating story. Makes really, really sense. worth looking into. John Chen, at age 20, moved to the USA where she studied filmmaking at California State University. You watched her most recently in Twin Peaks, I'm guessing. Did That's she make any right, impression on you in that? I have no recollection of her at all. I mean, she's good. Um, in so far as people are generally good in the first series, and then of course it just all gets lost a bit in the second series. She, it's interesting because she's having an affair with the sheriff, and the sheriff refers to her as the most beautiful woman in Twin Peaks, and she is quite good looking. But um, she's also very—I don't know—it's a small time. Uh, odd in that way that everybody in Twin Peaks behaves odd. There are no sex objects in Twin Peaks. Yeah, fair play. All right, moving on, we've got Peter O'Toole as Reginald Johnston. The real Reginald Johnston was from Edinburgh, born and died in Edinburgh, like a a real Scottish man. And Peter O'Toole playing him with about as much of a a Scottish accent as I have. Very similar. Born and raised in Leeds, O'Toole studied at RADA. What do you think is great? I mean, he is an Irish man. He is an Irish man. Let's be fair about this now, Peter. <laughs> He's an Irish man. He was born and raised in Leeds, England. O'Toole studied at RADA. He was in the same class as Albert Finney, Alan Bates, and Brian Bedford, the voice of Robin Hood from the 1973 Disney animated film. Excuse me. His father was an Irish man. So uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, so... we'll take credit for him there, please. I'm, fri- I'm from Ireland. Going to Ireland. That's how he would have spoken. Indeed. At that point. Uh, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I, like, I like that um, one of the Hellraisers, as they were called as a group uh, from the 1960s and 70s, managed to keep his composure to the right old a- ripe old age of 81. Uh, I don't know, Peter O'Toole... That's right, to- he, he did eventually succumb to stomach cancer age 81 in 2013. But yeah, I mean, like, for example... Richard Burton, Oliver Reed. I mean, he he never quite looked as haggard as these fellas in his final years. So I mean, I mean, for- you said you you said in a message to me you thought he looked okay in this film. Yes, he was in his mid fifties. Oh well, I suppose actually, when you put it like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he looks- I think you need to, to. I mean, think about Tom Cruise <laughs> at the same age. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. He looks like a man who drank. He looks like he's enjoyed a couple of sherries. Well, he famously has, yes. Severe illness almost ended O'Toole's life in the late 1970s. His stomach cancer was misdiagnosed as resulting from his alcoholic excess. O'Toole underwent surgery in 1976 to have his pancreas and a large portion of his stomach removed, Jesus which Christ. resulted in insulin-dependent diabetes. In 1978, he nearly died from a blood disorder. Wow. Thanks, Doc. So he'd had a lot of shit going on. I mean, it was a recurrence of stomach cancer that killed him at 81. But 81, with the the drinking that he must have done, not bad. Yeah, it's a fair old innings. Well done, well done you. He might have been born okay. in England, but he drank like an Irishman. <laughs> All right, hit me up with it. What's the Peter O'Toole filmography question? 
Peter O'Toole was nominated eight times for Best Leading Actor and never won. Can you? Correct. How many of these eight can you name without cheating? Oh, okay. I mean, I'm sure he got nominated for My Favourite Year. That's got to be one of them, right? Nope. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. He lost to Ben Kingsley's Gandhi in 1982. Um, let's see. There was one later than that as well, which I can't think of at mm-hmm. all. I'm sure he was nominated for um, Lawrence of Arabia, no? He lost to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. Um, I recall he was, he's fairly lauded for Goodbye Mr. Chips. So I'm He lost imagine- to John Wayne in True Grit, he lo- 1969. Oh, yeah, that's, that's just bad, isn't it, losing to John Wayne? I mean, mm-hmm. let's say The Lion in Winter is a big one of his. Am I right? Yeah, he lost to he lost to Cliff Robertson for Charlie. Oh wow, I'm doing okay here. Um, I think mm-hmm. I might be at the end of the line, though. Quite frankly, give me a second. See, can I get anything more? Um, no, no, I can't think of anything else. Go on, give them to me. 1964 Beckett. He lost to Rex Harrison, who for My Fair Lady. Okay, wouldn't have gotten that. 1972, The Ruling Class. He lost to Marlon Brando for The Godfather, although Brando declined his Oscar. 1980, The Stuntman, he lost to Robert De Niro for Raging Bull. Wouldn't have gotten that. And last one, the one you mentioned later on, was 2006 Venus with Jodie Whittaker, where he was like some kind of dirty old man. Yes. He lost to Forrest Whittaker, the last king of Scotland. Damn it. Scottish people won't let Irish people have nothing. That's true, because Forrest Whittaker... Famously, I think he's from Dundee. Uh, Fife, I believe. So moving on, we've got Victor Wong, who played Chen Bao Chen. Wong was born and raised in San Francisco. He studied theology at the University of Chicago. And while there, he joined Second City, the improv comedy troupe. In 1974, he was stricken with Bell's palsy. The palsy would give him his later distinctive appearance, but at the time, he felt his roles had diminished because he wasn't pretty looking. Wong met Jack Kerouac in the early 1960s, who chronicled their meeting in his novel Big Sur, 1962. In the novel, Wong is characterized as Arthur Ma. Have you read Big Sur? I have read Big Sur. That's the one where he gives up drinking in Big Sur National Park. Victor Wong is Arthur Ma. Wong appeared in such films as Big Trouble in Little China, The Golden Child, and Tremors, where he played store owner Walter Chang. I want to rewatch Tremors. I want to rewatch Big Trouble in Little China. That would be good too. Director Bernardo Bertolucci had trouble with Wong on the set of The Last Emperor amid arguments over historical authenticity and cut most of Wong's scenes in the film. I'm guessing you might have seen a bit more of him. I saw the role. Of he them, was yeah. the guy who come. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I mean, he turns up with the with the cricket pretty early on in the theatrical cut. That's about all I can remember from him. From him. From his character. I know he's Chen got an Bao advisory Chen. role and part of the court, generally. I don't remember anything of that. Upon learning of the events of September the 11th, 2001, Wong and his wife Rose spent the day trying to get news of Wong's sons who lived in New York City. They were unharmed. After Rose went to sleep, Wong stayed up to continue following the news. He died of a heart attack at some point during the morning of September 12th, 2001. Wow, that's At the age of, 84, age of 74, yeah. He got he got nine. He's the the final victim of nine eleven. <laughs> final cast member was Wu Jun Mei, who played Wang Xu, the oh, yes. uh, Empress Consort. Her name her English name is Vivian Wu. She's one of the only cast members who's still working. She was eighteen when she got the role as uh, Puyi's Empress Consort in twenty nineteen. She appeared in Kathy Yan's film Dead Pigs, inspired by the twenty thirteen Huangpu River dead pigs incident which was very well received leading to kathy yan going on to direct 2020 birds of prey that's right aka birds of prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one harley quinn mm-hmm. yes i've heard dead pigs is very good yeah and we i want to check it out it's basically there was a, uh, a situation that uh, maybe we don't need to know about this but a bunch of dead pigs started floating down a river in china well, sure. A huge number of dead pigs. Mad shit happens in China, sure. Have you heard about these, like, fucking hundreds of elephants wandering around the country? Right. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So the plot, 
1950, Puyi has been kept in custody for five years since the Red Army captured him during the Soviet invasion of Manchuria at the end of World War II. In the yes. recently established People's Republic of China, Puyi arrives as a political prisoner and war criminal at the Fushun prison. Soon after his arrival, Puyi attempts suicide but is quickly revived and told he must stand trial. Is his capture at the hands of Russians in the plane in your version? Yes, towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that they were funny Russians because they were just like, <laughs> we need Russians. I'm sure they were Italian. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 42 years earlier in 1908, a toddler Puyi is summoned to the Forbidden City by the dying Empress Dowager Chichi. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. After telling him that the previous emperor had died earlier that day, with her last words, Chichi tells Puyi that he will be the next emperor. Her name is Chichi. After emperor, his current Empress Chichi. I don't know. It's C I X I. Apologies. That's the English spelling of this. Her name's Chichi. She went to Choo Choo University. <laughs> I don't know. I listen. I listen, folks. I don't, I'm sorry. Okay. I don't. It's, I don't know. Puyi. That's easy. I can do that one. So Chi-Chi-Chi-Chi tells Puyi that he will be the next emperor. After his coronation, Puyi, frightened by his new surroundings, repeatedly expresses his wish to go home, which is denied. Despite having scores of palace eunuchs and maids to wait on him, his only real friend is his wet nurse, Armo, who accompanied him and his father to the palace on the Empress Dowager's summons. Uh, What's the deal with the eunuchs? I mean, I I, I read a little bit about eunuchs and, like... The concept is that if someone chops off their dick and balls, then they're no longer a threat to you because they can't have kids, so they can't build a, some kind of dynasty. Something like that. That's yeah. it? Something like that. The previous emperor had abdicated as part of the reformation process. This was part of the... Um, so this, this child being made the symbolic emperor was actually just basically part of the process of taking apart the dynasty, really. It's interesting. But then... Um, yeah, the so some the, of the uh, previous emperor was poisoned with arsenic as well. There we have it for trying to reform or something. I gather, and it could have been the eunuchs. Because, I think the uh, I think I think the um, I think the empress dowager was not a fan of him <laughs> either. But anyway, sure. The, the, but like as it's explored later in it, I mean, the eunuchs and all the people involved with the Forbidden City, thieving you know, they, shite bags. They had an interest in keeping the whole thing going. But like, yeah, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, Puyi was um, famously cruel to his eunuchs. At one point, for uh, getting one of them to like eat a cake that he had baked with um, iron filings in it. Apparently, he never went through with that. He was talked out of it, finally. But he was desperate to see what would happen. (laughs) He wanted to know what the eunuch's response would be to eating the iron filing cake. Uh, All the eunuchs at that time who uh, lived in the palace had to wear their uh, penis and testicles in a jar <laughs> round their necks. This is, that's honestly true. We see that later on in one scene of the film where yeah, the eunuchs yeah, get yeah. kicked out. The eunuchs are forced to leave the Forbidden City and a bunch of them are, there's like three guys carrying their dick and balls in a jar. And the, the uh, I don't know, is it like Johnston or someone who says like, they, they need to be buried as, as whole men. It's only right. I'll do the same when I go back to Scotland with my penis in a jar. Take, I'll take my second balls with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, he left his penis in, in Edinburgh. The next section of the film continues a series of chronological flashbacks showing Puyi's early life intermixed with his imprisonment in the 1950s. This is the kind of plot summary I can get behind. It's like the one that they know someone's just going to read out on a podcast years later. His upbringing is confined entirely to the Imperial Palace, which he's not allowed to leave. When he's about 10, I like that as well. I like how vague that is. When he's about 10, he's visited by his younger brother, Puchi, who tells him he's no longer emperor in the China's Republic. That same day, Armo is made to leave him. Oh, in no. 1919, the kindly Scotsman, Regi- kindly Scotsman, nice, <laughs> good adjective, Reginald Johnston is appointed as Puyi's tutor and gives him a Western-style education. Puyi becomes increasingly desirous to leave the Forbidden City. Johnston, wary of the courtier's expensive lifestyle, convinces Puyi the best way of achieving this is by marrying. Puyi subsequently weds Wan Rong and Wen Chu as a secondary consort. 
nice restrained sexy time scenes with these two which i found quite erotic again i read i read quite a lot of the wikipedia articles around the history and puyi himself he preferred to spend time with his eunuchs as well and they had they had devised uh, some kind of games to tire him out sexually which i respect agreed what do you think of reginald johnston as a character yeah I mean, there's a version of him in many movies, like the Westerner arrives over to tell the story. He's basically Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai a bit, isn't he? I mean, it's fine. It's fun. It doesn't really... It's real, is the point, I suppose, because it doesn't contribute anything to the story, apart from the fact that Pew Yee denies some things that Johnston wrote in his book years later. But apart from that... I have a copy of that book, and I may eventually get around to reading it. If I was literate, it's something that I would consider reading... It's called uh, Twilight in the Forbidden City. It looks quite interesting. He wrote it in 1934, I think. What, you have that in your uh, house? After returning to the UK. Well, yeah, I mean, I got it from the Blockbuster Library. The, oh, nice. the Blockbuster Book Library. And so, much like as many things have become devalued over time, so has literature. I may get around to reading that one day, who knows? Now the master of his own home, Puyi sets about reforming the Forbidden City, including expelling the thieving palace eunuchs. However, in 1924, he himself is expelled from the palace and exiled to Qianjing, Qianxing, following the Beijing coup. He leads a decadent life as a playboy and anglophile, the worst kind of file, and he sides with Japan after the Mukden incident. During this time, Wenshu divorces him, but Wan Rong remains and eventually succumbs to opium addiction. In 1934, the Japanese crown him emperor of their puppet state of Manchukuo. Manchukuo. Which was a horrible place. Though his supposed political supremacy is undermined at every turn. Wan Rong gives birth to a child, but the baby is murdered at birth by the... The baby's murdered at birth by the Japanese and proclaimed stillborn. Um, yeah, um, I just assumed it was actually. I naively thought it was stillborn. Oh, really? No, because they showed the baby alive. Oh, yeah. I c- completely disregarded that. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, yeah. And then it shows them getting That's a big, how little a big I know sinister about syringe. Like this, yeah. But, um, yeah. So, they, like, the Japanese basically used um, Manchuria um, as, like, a slave state almost to pay for the war. And, I mean, it didn't get them very far. They were, like... The Japanese were bankrupt by the time they fucking bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, There's one thing that... uh, One other thing Michael Bay missed the point with in that movie is that that roll of the dice, Pearl Harbor, was calculated specifically to be the last thing anybody would expected them to do. And it was the last thing anyone would have expected them to do because it was kind of known that they were reaching the end of their tether resources-wise. So to do something like that, just to kind of try to take out the American fleet was one of their very few options. But then anyway, like, I mean, yeah, the way, ways that they were paying for their conflicts at that time, they're expand Because the thing is as well, that another thing that people don't realize is for the Japanese, World War II is actually like a 15-year conflict. It's not a six-year conflict. Because of the Sino-Japanese War. Exactly, yeah. So by the time they get around to bombing Pearl Harbor, they are broke. Sino-Japanese War sounds good. It sounds like there are no Japanese. You can't see any Japanese people there. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound bad. I think it was was actually essentially a force led by John Cena. If you think about it, the vast majority of international conflicts are also Sino-Japanese wars. Agreed. Yes, yes. I I didn't think about it like that, but now that you've opened my mind (laughs) to it. I'm going to call. I'm going to ask someone if there's a war. I'll see, like, is it another Sino-Japanese war? (laughs) <laughs> or are they involved this time? So he remains nominal ruler of the region until his capture by the Red Army. Under the communist re-education program for political prisoners, Puyi is coerced by his interrogators to formally renounce his forced collaboration with the Japanese invaders for war crimes during the Second Sino-Japanese War. Mm-hmm. Finally, after a heated discussion with the camp commandant and upon watching a film detailing the wartime atrocities committed by the Japanese Puyi recants his previous stance and is considered rehabilitated by the government. He's subsequently set free in 1959. Do you think that scene is accurate of him watching newsreel footage and no, going like, and oh, I, no. I, I kind of thought that was a bit... Oh, no. I thought, I thought that was a bit dumb, uh, to be honest. Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me. 
but uh, you gotta get there somehow I would grant them and um, yeah that's a, a handy enough way to hammer it together at the end of the day the final minutes of the film show a flash forward to 1967 I like this part during the rise yes. of Mao Zedong's cult of person oh no I was gonna say I like the final final part but the final like minutes of the film show like flash forward though, to the, the ending I thought was yeah. really well done the f- the final minutes of the film show a flash forward to 1967 during the rise of Mao Zedong's cult of personality and the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. By now, Puyi has become a simple gardener who lives a peasant proletarian existence, just like me. On his way home from work, he happens upon a Red Guard parade, complete with children playing pentatonic music on accordions en masse and dancers who dance the rejection of landlordism by the communists. Hmm? His prison camp commander, who helped him greatly during his rehabilitation, is one of the political prisoners now punished as an anti-revolutionary in the parade, forced to wear a dunce cap and a sandwich board bearing punitive slogans. Oh, by the way, so you know the way this film is in English, but they speak with the accents and everything. Yeah. Were Were there any lines that just made you laugh just because they sounded silly? I have two. Not One that more. I recall. No, not that. Not that I recall. But it is quite bad thinking that most of the, at least half of the actors are from the U.S. Uh, and are not well, actually native Chinese. One was when uh, Puyi says, uh, "I want a car." I thought that made me laugh. <laughs> and another one was when he there was are, talking about definitely a couple. Yeah, his potential wives, and he says she has a funny face. That made me laugh. Yeah, yeah, that was good. I did enjoy. She's got. She has a funny face. It's uh, similar to Lawrence from School of Rock. It's that level of... And also, actually, one one thing that... I think think the children had big elements of that because they weren't professional actors. I mean, well, maybe they were, but they were kids. Peter, when Peter O'Toole gets him a bicycle and then he's cycling around the Forbidden City, it made me realize, how could you not... How could you live in the Forbidden City and not have a bicycle? You would need a bicycle for the Forbidden City. Into the final section of the film the last little bit Puyi later visits the forbidden city as an ordinary tourist he meets an assertive little boy wearing the red scarf of the pioneer movement the young communist orders Puyi to step away from the throne however Puyi proves to the boy that he was indeed the son of heaven proceeding to approach the throne behind it Puyi finds a 60 year old pet cricket that he was given by palace official Chen Baochen on his coronation day and gives it to the child Amazed by the gift, the boy turns to talk to Puyi, but the emperor has disappeared. Yeah, I like it's all a bit lot. magical there. Magic mm. cricket, the guy uh, Puyi disappears. Then, in the very, very final scene in 1987, a tour guide is leading a group through the palace. Stopping in front of the throne, the guide sums up Puyi's life in a few brief sentences, concluding that he died in 1967. That part, I'm not really on board with that, of the, the final 1987 tour guide part, because it's just like, oh, I liked it. Yeah, Puyi, Puyi's dead. And then it just showed, then it went to credits. Maybe you have more there. No, 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 no. I it just felt had very that. brief. No, but I liked that. I just kind of thought, uh, like, that is... At least we know he's like, dead. I think one of the main reasons that this is an interesting story is this guy was the last in a 5,000-year dynasty, and now blip, and he's gone, and nobody knows it. It reminded mm-hmm. me of uh, the end of... That is crazy. It reminded me of the end of uh, a film that I, I have said on here I'm a huge fan of, and you less so. But at the end of Gangs of New York, there's a kind of an implication of that, like nobody will ever know anything about these people ever again. And that kind of historical stuff really gets me. And I thought them summing that up in just a tour guide's line was was really, I thought it was quite like interesting and nice. And yeah, I was I was happy with that as an ending. Overall, I think it's like when people do these, the, this kind of epic film right, and basically I think they need to have a, you can't, you can't be so gritty and realistic. You need to have a respect for theatricality and, you know, it, it has to be drawn out with nice little dramatic beats and it needs high drama. Like, this is the reason why something like this, in my opinion, succeeds and something like The Deer Hunter falls flat in its big fat face. For me, anyway, loads of people love The Deer yeah. Hunter. I'm not one of them. No, this is, I much prefer this to Deer Hunter. Yeah, like you, like this kind of respects the theatricality and pacing, and it's like, yeah, we're t- they're they're trying to sum up a lifetime for you. Like people will call this, you know, this is oh, this is a long movie. Yeah, they're trying to sum up a fucking lifetime. Will you give them a break for a second? You know, this also came out the same year as Empire of the Sun. Yeah, we. I. This is a better film. I would agree with that. Anyway, I'm really happy we got around uh, to watching this, and I won't be so shy about. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, it a lot. 
about about um, suggesting historical epics going forward. Definitely, if it's of this quality. But like we said, it's a nine Oscar winning film. Back when the Oscars best were picture relevant. Winner. You gave us a category for the last one that, uh, quite frankly, it was difficult to find something that I hadn't seen on. Really? Of a two? There's two? That's bullshit. On uh, I refuse to believe that. There's a lot of oh, no, awful no, 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 shit. Oh, no, 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 no. That, okay, I know there's what you're going to say. There's a lot of animated films. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and there's, there's also some terrible, a lot of films. terrible looking animated films. There's also a lot of films you just look at the title and you go, ah, this was big in China. That's where this made. Yeah, there's a couple of those. Yeah, there's yeah. like, or like, and I don't know if you're going to, about to kind of unleash Transformers 7 or something, but. Yeah, yeah, I've there's seen a, all There's of that a lot shit. of big, really, I haven't, but there's a big I think franchise pieces of shit. I think it's very likely that you and I are going to land on the same film this week. So anyway, the criteria was it had to have earned half a half a billion, 500 million US dollars worldwide gross. What are you bringing to the table? Well, I, I, I'm intrigued if it is the same thing. I don't think so. I feel like you've seen this. I went for American Sniper. Ah, right. Okay. I've never oh. seen it. Okay, fair enough. I went 547 for... million. It's a really good film. I hope you win. Even though, no, I'm curious to see my film as well. I went for James Wan's 2018 Aquaman. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that. So that would I've got that in my list of DCEU films still to watch. Sweet. So no worries. Do you have a coin? I think I do. I'm going to give you a one or a fat Spanish head. That's a one or a fat Spanish head. Fat Spanish head, please. And the winner is Fat Spanish Head. Hey, American Snipper. Well done to you. Okay, the criteria that I'm going to give you for next week is going to be... I'm going to go with a French film. It's got to be a French film. Okay, I can do that. Uh, I like French films, boring, pretentious French films. Okay, good. All right, well, I'm going to find you one that's neither boring nor pretentious. I look forward to it. Hopefully it's The Visitors. I've always been meaning to watch that. Uh, yeah, I'll get that. No, I've seen all, that, unfortunately. All right, cool beans. Well, I've taken up my uh, in-law's kitchen for long enough. So yeah, I'm going to say I I'm love sure. you. People need to eat. And goodbye. I love you too. Yeah. Bye, babes. Bye. Bye, babes. Kisses. Kisses.